You are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. preaching passage today is 2 Samuel 18.1 through 19.8a. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Daniel mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss was great that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head was caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth. While the mule that was under him went on, and a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him that, What? You saw him? Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom, and they threw him into a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken a set, taken and set up for himself a pil- the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then... Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, 
You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadduk, said again to Joab, come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. Then Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. And, and he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadduk. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it, what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son? And it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for all the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they have fled in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, that you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting at the, sitting at the gate. And all the people came before the king. This is the word of the Lord. I know that was a, a lot of text. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you, Christine, for reading. Um, but honestly, uh, reading of the words is the most important part of my sermon. 
And so I will never apologize for reading too much Bible. So um, anyway, well, good morning. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. Uh, first off, I want to I want to thank Joy and all her leadership heading up our ladies retreat this weekend and um, all the work she put into that. And, are you tired right now? All right. All right. She's tired. She's still here. Um, so can we thank her for all of her work with that? Um, it's, I know, I know you're technically on staff, you are like, yeah, you're part-time, but at the same time, so many of our, um, there's so many people in this church that volunteer their time, that give their time, that, uh, our church is so volunteer-led, um, which is so refreshing, you know, I, there are a lot of churches that, you know, if they have the means, instead of asking for volunteers, they'll pay somebody to do the work, and, um, we have so many people here that, are just so servant hearted, so I'm so so grateful for all of you, and um, I look forward to uh, many of you stepping into leadership roles this coming year, um, 2024. More on that later uh, in the next few weeks, but um, yeah, so thankful for for Joy and for all of our church and all the ways you guys serve. So, so we're coming uh, here into the final stretch of our study of First and Second Samuel. And we'll begin making our way uh, through the Gospel of Luke starting on November 19th. That's going to be our next kind of uh, thing we work through. Um, so that gives us, counting today, five more weeks in 2 Samuel. Some of you guys are probably breathing a sigh of relief. Some of you guys are probably sad. Most of us are probably a mixture of both. Um, especially, like, after these last few weeks that have been so heavy, Sermons that are so heavy, you know, you may just need a breath of fresh air, and Luke, Luke may bring that. I think some, some chapters later bring that in Samuel, but we'll get there. Um, but I pray, I pray that the Lord has used this study in your own life like he has in mine, and just reminded you that even, even in the heavy sermons we preach, that, that the Lord is faithful to us, and his grace is available to us, and, and there's healing found in him. So... Today we uh, come to the end of a section that, is, that really began, honestly, back in chapter 13, and it's a section that has really been focused on Absalom, David's third-born son. The entire six-chapter section, so 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, where we're going to land today, uh, tells the story of Absalom's relationship with his father, King David. It's a pretty complicated relationship, right? I mean, he lives, Absalom really lives a complicated life. Like back in chapter 13, when, when Amnon <clears throat> assaults Tamar and David doesn't do anything to punish Amnon, if you remember, Absalom takes matters into his own hands, right? And he goes out and exacts justice on Amnon by taking his life for assaulting his sister. And we read it, and there's a part of us that's like, yeah. You know, like, like, you're like, yeah, like justice slash vengeance, you know, has been served in a sense. But I mean, boo, you know, it's murder. Like, we don't condone that. Uh, we're not for murder here. It's like when you watch a movie like, like Taken with Liam Neeson, right? And, and you know, the premise of the story, his daughter gets taken, hence the word, by traffickers. And we quickly find out that Liam Neeson has a special set of skills, and he uses these <laughs> skills to exact vengeance on his daughter's kidnappers, and he gets her back. And we're all cheering, right? We're like, yeah, look at Liam Neeson, this is awesome. And then at the same time, we're like, no, but he killed a bunch of people, right? Like, this is not all good. Um, and so we're like, it's a complicated thing, right? 
We feel these complicated emotions in us, these complicated desires. Now, so even in that first account of Absalom, we have in the scriptures back in chapter 13, we really get to know him a little bit. The narrator is giving us a, a foreshadowing that this guy's life's going to be really complicated. You know, we're going to have to feel ourselves as readers kind of torn inside of how to read through many of these chapters from 13 to 18. And the relationship Absalom has with his dad, King David, is equally as complicated. There are a lot of us that have complicated relationships with our fathers. So in a small way, we can understand this relationship a little bit. You know, Absalom deserved discipline and justice and punishment for a variety of his actions from the hand of the king. But David's role as a parent oftentimes overruled David's role as the king. David would overlook many of Absalom's faults because his desires to have a relationship with his son took precedence over his desires to rule a kingdom justly and to not treat his kids with special favor. And we kind of get that too, for those of us that are parents in the room. You know, I can't tell you how many times I know I need to discipline my kids for actions they've done. I can give you a list of things this weekend that they've done. Where Ellie and Riley, not so much Aiden, I don't really have a problem disciplining Aiden. It's Ellie and Riley, the girls, that I really have a hard time with. You know, they give you that, like, puckered lip look, like, you know, whatever, in the same little kid, kid tone, like, I'm so sorry, Daddy. You know, I'll do it again. And I cave like the Braves in the playoff series, right? <laughs> and it's no time at all. And I'm like, all right, okay, okay. You know what? You know what? Like, you've learned your lesson. No need for anything else. You're good. You're good. Let's move along. I love you so much. Uh, you know, and there's no, no discipline. And that doesn't really help my kids, you know, in the long run. You know, David's, on a much grander scale, David's overlooking of Absalom's significant moral issues and his law-breaking actions doesn't help Absalom. but actually empowers him even more, if you read the story. You know, the next few chapters that, that we covered the last couple of weeks after chapter 13, you know, we see that his actions begin leading to rebellion. You know, forming a coup against his father to overthrow his dad from his throne, to take it for himself. You know, Absalom's life is a complicated life. You know, not complicated in the sense that it's hard to understand, but, but complicated because if we really took a close look at it, and we're really honest with ourselves, in Absalom's desires, we can probably see some of our own desires in him. And what do we do with those desires? You know, and here... For today, we come to kind of the final, literally the final chapter of his life that we have in the scriptures, chapter 18. And if you remember, sorry, there's a marker up here that's rolling around. So I don't know if you remember the end of chapter 17. Last week, David and his small ragtag army are hiding out in the wilderness, and they're met and supplied by a variety of foreign nations. And, and here at the start of chapter 18, David is assembling his army into a significant fighting force. And he begins to organize all of his troops under three commanders. Joab, which we know Joab, we've read about him for a while. Abishai, Joab's brother, who wants to cut everybody's head off. We read about him a couple of weeks ago. And Ittai the Gittite, right? Ittai the Gittite. And David, while he's doing this, you know, he volunteers his own services. You know, remember, at this point in the story, David is probably in his mid to late 50s here. Fighting days are probably well behind him. 
It's like when an older man, as well-intentioned as they may be, is helping you do some work around the house, and they're just really insistent on climbing that ladder, right? And you're like, hey, man, I know you mean well. I know you do. But my burden in caring for you on that ladder is going to just usurp anything I'm able to get done around this house. Love you, but why don't you just stay on the ground a little bit? And you can help me out that way. We've all been there. We know. And David's troops, when he's like, I'm going with you into battle. They're like, hey, man, appreciate the offer, uh, but you're a little older. You're the king, which means, you know, if you go down, all of us die in a sense because you're the reason we're in this war to begin with. So you probably better for you to stay back in the city and command us from here. And by God's grace, David says, all right, that sounds good. But he does make one request in verse five of chapter 18 says to his commanders, which is actually in front of all the troops, he says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. You know, David may not have always been a good father, but at the end of the day, he's still a father. He loves his son despite the deep wounds that his son has inflicted upon him. So the army, they head out. And the entire battle really spans three verses, verses 6 through 8. 20,000 of Absalom's troops are killed in the battle. 20,000 Israelites on one side are casualties of war. You know, given those numbers and the population of Israel at the time, probably not many families unaffected by those deaths in the nation of Israel. I mean, everybody felt that, those 20,000 deaths. It was just insurmountable cost. You know, at the... Uh, given for the, the right of Absalom to take this throne. And then the narrator switches our attention from the battle as a whole, verses 6 through 8, to focus in on one person, namely Absalom. In verse 9, we read that uh, Absalom's on a mule, and while he's riding, he gets caught in a tree. And whether that's his hair or his head, doesn't really matter. He's caught in a tree. He's not going anywhere. And the mule just continues to walk on. You can just imagine the scene in your mind. Like his head gets caught in a tree, the mule keeps going, he's just hanging there. Nobody around. Doesn't know what to do. And the text says that it leaves him stranded there. The mule leaves him stranded there between heaven and earth. And a man in Joab's army, he sees Absalom hanging from this tree, and he runs back to Joab and reports what he had seen. And Joab berates him for not killing Absalom. I would have given you a promotion. You know, 10 shekels in the belt. You know, what's, what's awesome. What a promotion. I would have given you a promotion. It's basically what Joab told the guy. If you would have just struck him down, killed him. But the man had heard David command the generals not to harm Absalom. And he tells Joab he wouldn't lay a hand on the king's son after hearing the command from the king. And Joab has enough of this guy's excuses, and he says, I'm going to take matters in my own hands. And he takes three spears, three javelins, and he goes to Absalom, and he kills him while he's hanging in the tree. And then ten of Joab's armor bearers also join in the killing. I don't know why, maybe to cover up who actually struck first. I don't know. But the usurper, Absalom, is dead. And the reason for fighting, because he is dead, is over. That ceases. You know, there's a lot of gray area here in analyzing Joab's decision, another area of complication in this story. 
Was Joab's killing of Absalom a direct violation of David's order? Yeah, it was. But at the same time, was the killing of Absalom an end to the war? Yeah, it was. You know, maybe Joab had seen the poor decision-making of David over the last decade concerning his son. And maybe Joab thought David's request not to harm Absalom was just another poor decision, blinded by his role as a parent that would not have benefited the nation, that would have led to more fighting and more grief and more bloodshed. I don't know, but the narrator doesn't unpack the rightness or wrongness of the act. He just tells us what happened. He kind of leaves it to us to wrestle with. You know, I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might, might or might not know this about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We know him from books like Life Together, Cost of Discipleship, his work in Germany, early 20th century. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer in 1943 was involved in an assassination attempt against Adolf Hitler. If you knew that or not. Christian, pastor, professor, author, assassin, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <laughs> Now, given what we know now, was it right or wrong for Dietrich Bonhoeffer to try to take out Adolf Hitler in 1943? It's for us to wrestle with. You know, like Joab's decision here just adds another layer to the complicatedness that's going on here in chapter 18 of 17. So Absalom dies. We're not going to talk more about that. I'll leave it to read, wrestle with. We can talk about it later. And read with me again verses 17 and 18. Chapter 18. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. So hold on to those two verses. We're going to come back to those here in just a few minutes. So hold on to those. Put them in the back end. The text continues on, verse 19. Ahimahaz, son of Zadok, the priest, volunteers to go tell the king of the victory. And Joab refuses to let him go. Now maybe Joab remembers the history of people thinking they're bringing David good news that just end up dead. All right? Think back to the guy that brought news of Saul and Jonathan's death. David killed him. The person that brought news of Ishbosheth's death, he's dead too. So maybe Joab is like, hey, Ahimaaz, don't tell him that the king's son is dead. You might die. And so what does Joab do? Classy as he is, he sends a foreigner to give the news. It's just, it's just a trash move. He sends a foreigner to give the news. But Ahimaaz really desires to go, and so Joab finally relents, thinking that this Cushite, this foreigner, will outrun Ahimaaz and tell David first, so anger will be exercised on him rather than Ahimaaz. But Ahimaaz runs faster. He gets there first. And David and his watchmen are watching the hills for anybody coming with news. The language here reminds me of, of the father in the prodigal son story, sitting by the gate, like watching the hills waiting for his son, waiting for news to come, right? But David's there and he sees Ahimaaz first running and he's encouraged because if one person's running, that means the whole army wasn't routed. You know, if there were multiple people coming over the mountain, that would mean they lost. But if one person's running, there's a good chance that he brings good news. 
So he comes over the hills, followed by the Cushite. And they bring him the news, and the Cushite is actually the one to deliver them. Excuse me, deliver the news of Absalom. And rather than anger driving David in the moment, he falls into just a, a deep, deep grief. He says, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And again, as parents, we get that to a certain extent. You know, our kids can hurt us in deep, deep ways. Deep ways. Especially the older they get. Some of you in this room, you have older kids. You have older kids. You can understand this to a certain extent. You know, kids can deliver unique, massive wounds upon their parents. But at the end of the day, they're still your kids. And the grief would be great if anything were to happen to even in the poorest of relationships. I mean, what parent, what parent, think about the parents of Israel right now. What parent would not have given their lives in the place of their kids? Even the hardest of children. So David's grief, it extends into chapter 19. Next week, Eric will pick some of this up to the point that the troops that have been fighting, they feel ashamed for being for celebrating the victory. Because the king is has caught so, so is grieving so much at the death of his son. Their victory is turned into mourning, and Joab rebukes King David. Like significantly rebukes King David. And I'm gonna read it again because it is it is in your face. Chapter 19, verses 5 through 7. Joab speaking to King David. You've today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. Listen to this. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that's come upon you from now until your youth. That's, that's, that's some strong words right there from Joab and David. But it woke the king up, and for a moment he shelved his parent hat, put on the king hat, sat by the gate, and began to rule. So let's backtrack just a bit. Now, I mentioned before that, that whether we want to admit it or not, we can find ourselves in much of Absalom. We can. Sure, there are things that he did that we would never do. There are actions that he took that we would never consider on, a, on our worst of days. But at the same time, Absalom is presented here in many ways to encompass us all. Because Absalom embodies the human predicament, the fallen human state. And in many ways, is the antithesis of what we see in Jesus. So let's go back. I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. Let's go back to the last few chapters and this chapter. And let's take a deep dive into Absalom. And let's just see ourselves in him. But let's also see how Jesus is our hope and the anti-Absalom in every single way. First, first way. 
Absalom was rebellious and sinful, and Jesus was sinless. Absalom was rebellious and sinful. Jesus was sinless. You know, it seems like Absalom's story from chapter 13 to 18 is rooted in rebellion. I mean, going back to chapter 13, as much as his actions against Amnon may have been justified, it wasn't his responsibility or his role to seek vengeance in that moment. Absalom's actions were rooted more in that vengeance than in justice. They're two different things. So even his first actions, as sympathetic as we may be towards them, are rebellion against the laws of God. He's rebelling. You read on and you see his brazen rebellion grow. You know, as he, as he goes behind his father's back to gain support for this coup, as he sleeps with all of his father's concubines in the public eye of Israel, as he continually shames his dad and not honoring him as his father, all of these things are sinful at their core. We could, we could literally list a number of laws in the Torah that Absalom is breaking over and over and over again. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. Leviticus 20, 11. Deuteronomy 27, 16 through 20. We could go on and on and on and on. Absalom was clearly a sinful and rebellious person. Clearly. There's no denying. Like us. Right? Like us. Before we can understand any parts of the gospel church, before we can understand any parts of the good news of Christ, there is a, there's a coming to terms and understanding and admitting that we are sinful at our very nature and our very core. That we are separated from God, spiritually dead, because of our actions, our rebellion against our king. Rebellion is what we talked about a few weeks ago. It's what, it's what the, is at the heart of sin, is rebellion. Seeing God's ways and choosing not to pursue God's way. But that's not the case with Christ. You know, you read about Jesus in the New Testament and you see clearly that he never rebelled against God's laws. In fact, he kept every single one, not only in his external actions, but in the disposition of his heart, his motives in performing those actions. In Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. It wasn't just that Jesus lived in a temptationless bubble his whole life. He was tempted in every way we are, yet he remained sinless. And this is the main reason he was qualified to be the atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. You know, if Jesus was sinful in any way, he could not be the unblemished Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The cross would have been meaningless if a sinful person was hanging on it. For how can a sinful man atone for other sinful people? He could not. He couldn't. Atonement must have been made by someone qualified or spotless of sin, and only Christ could fulfill that. He was our substitute in life by keeping all of God's laws for us. He was our substitute in death by taking the penalty for our lawless deeds upon himself. Absalom and us are rebellious people. Christ is not. Second, Absalom craved self-glory. Jesus sought the Father's glory. 
that Absalom sought to steal the hearts of the men of Israel. It's back in chapter 15. And he did. He did in many ways. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He followed after him. He sought to make himself great. And that's what coups are rooted in, right? Self, making yourself great, bringing honor to yourself so that people follow you rather than the one on the throne. You promote your glory for your sake. And even this monument he built in chapter 18 refers to his self, himself. 2 Samuel 14, if you back up a little bit, we're told that Absalom had three sons. Three. But then you read chapter 18, then he builds this monument to himself because he said, I have no son to keep in remembrance, which implies that all three sons of his had died. So Absalom himself knows the grief and loss of losing children. But he builds this monument to his greatness, calls it after his own name, the text tells us, because he desires to not be forgotten after he dies. I will glorify myself so people remember me after I am gone. Essentially, this thing. Now, self-glory is, is extremely short-sighted. Extremely short-sighted. And I've done this before. I'm going to do it again. If you can name the first and last names of your great-grandparents, will you raise your hand? Your great-grandparents, first and last name, on your mother and father's side. Anybody. Great-grandparents. It's all I'm asking. Great-grandparents. No one in this room can name the first and last names of your great-grandparents. I can't. Four generations removed from people in your very own family who've already forgotten their names. How short-sighted is it to pursue our own glory? our own name, when we can't even remember people in our own families. Very few people in the history of the world are still remembered and revered. Many of those people we remember are remembered for all the wrong reasons. Right? So what makes us think that building our own kingdoms and seeking to bring glory to our own names is an endeavor worth pursuing? How often we pursue accolades that fade, how often we build empires that crumble, how often we pursue monetary gain that will die with us. Our lives must be centered around something better, something greater. The life of Jesus was centered on something greater. How many times throughout the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, does the desire of Jesus come to the surface that his ultimate pursuit was to glorify the Father? As he approached the cross, John 12, 27, 28, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So one of the many things I love about our Trinitarian God, Son glorifying the Father, Father glorifying the Son, Spirit of God pointing to Christ, who then points to the Father, who then elevates Christ. It's this this internal selflessness in the Godhead that should characterize us as well. Should always be pointing away from ourselves to the glory of another. It's not about us. It's about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Absalom, in us we crave self-glory. Jesus seeks to glorify the Father. Third, Absalom was prideful. Jesus was humble. Absalom was prideful. Jesus was humble. C.S. Lewis Mere Christianity 
says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you can't see something that's above you, which is a quote, perfectly ironic, given Absalom's faith. Pride has characterized Absalom from early on. Go back to, if you look, if you look in verse 9 of chapter 18, there are a couple things to note here. Verse 9 of chapter 18. First, Absalom is riding a mule. You know, in those days, uh, mules were like the Bentleys of transportation. Right? They were a big deal. Only, only distinguished people, dignified, rich people rode mules. But here's Absalom and the pride of appearing dignified, riding a mule in a muddy forest. You know, it's like, it's like me trying to take my old 2001 Ford Focus out for a mud ride. It doesn't work. It's not a tool fit for the task at hand. You know, Absalom and his pride wanted to continue looking important. So he's using something to elevate himself, be prideful in, show his dignity and his worth that ends up leading him to trouble, his death. And then second, he's caught by his hair or head. I'm not sure if you remember this or not, but back in 2 Samuel chapter 14, uh, chapter, or verses 25 and 26 says this. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. You know, hair in the ancient Near East was a sign of manliness and macho-ness. Like, you got a good head of hair, man, you can probably take care of a lot of things. And here's Absalom in battle with the fullness of his hair. Which is not what soldiers do. If for soldiers going into battle, part of preparing for war would have been to cut your hair, shave your head, so the helmet could better fit on your head. But not Absalom. Now he's good looking on his Bentley mule. He's too vain. He's too prideful to prepare for war like all the other men. So C.S. Lewis said he's literally looking down for being caught in a tree because of his pride. Jesus, on the other hand, was the epitome of humble. He left the glories of heaven to assume the poverty of earth. He grew up in a humble home. He worked a humble job. Never sought to belittle or ridicule anyone for his own self-gain, his own pleasure. He never turned his nose up to the least in society, to the lepers prostitutes and the sick and the lame and the poor. And his humility led him ultimately to the cross. The death reserved for the worst of the worst offenders in Roman society. The death that literally by very nature was, in, was designed to inflict not only the worst pain on an individual, but the most humiliation upon an individual. He had all his clothes stripped off. He had his beard plucked out. Mocked and scorned as he hung there dying by people he came to save. Literally the apex of shame. The creator and sustainer of all things in his humility subjected himself to this. Which leads to the fourth and final point. Absalom was cursed and deserved it. Jesus became cursed and didn't deserve it. I mentioned earlier all the laws in the Torah that Absalom had broken. 
throughout the duration of his life, failing to honor his father and mother, put you under a curse. He did that. Sleeping with your father's wife or concubines, in his case, he did that. It put you under a curse. The author of 2 Samuel admits no words in painting a picture of Absalom that leaves us without any doubt that Absalom was cursed by God. Let me give you five reasons really quick, literally, real quick, five reasons why we can see this in literally just chapter 18, in verses 17 and 18, what I told you we'd come back to. Absalom's killed and buried outside the promised land. He's east of the Jordan River, where his remains would be forever. He's outside of the land. He's cursed by God, no longer living in the land. Second, by piling his grave up with stones, the last person had stones piled on his grave like this, Achan. Back in Joshua chapter 7, if you remember the story of Achan, he stole from Jericho, brought judgment upon the people of God, and he was stoned, and his grave was piled on the stones. Then you also have in that same account another king, the king of Ai, back in Joshua, whose grave was also piled with stones. This rebellious king who was killed, who was cursed by God, as Absalom was. Here, fourth, this act of piling stones symbolically fulfills the the Torah mandate in Deuteronomy 21 that a rebellious son is to be stoned. Absalom is a rebellious son. And then fifth, probably the most important of all, the means of Absalom's death was him hanging in a tree. But Deuteronomy 21 says that anyone hung in a tree is cursed by God under the judgment of God. Absalom deserved God's curse for a variety of reasons and he received God's curse. Jesus, on the other hand, was a sinless, completely innocent man who chose to become a curse for us. And the Apostle Paul, he's writing a letter of Galatian, to the Galatians in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, and talking about Jesus, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a, a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Son of God hung cursed upon the tree of Calvary so that you and I, more Absalom-like than we like to admit, may be free from a curse to be more Christ-like than we ever deserve. We deserve a curse. Christ became a curse for us. You know, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot in this sermon of, of application points. I get that. But I do think it's appropriate one, because we need it. Two, because he's worthy of it to be reminded of the great lengths God went to save us. You know, we forget the gospel so often. We forget it, maybe not in our minds, but we forget it in our actions. And we need to be reminded, if you're a believer in Christ here, that Jesus Christ has borne every weight of curse upon his own self so that you wouldn't have to bear any ounce of it upon yourself. That in his free grace and mercy, he took all of these things upon himself to deliver us rebellious people. And he is making us all new through the Spirit. And that should produce in us feelings of gratitude and feelings of humility we deserve what Absalom got, yet Jesus took it. Our Father didn't overlook justice to grant us mercy like David. 
But our Father exacted justice on His own Son so that we could be granted mercy. And if you're not a Christian here, if you're here in this room and you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I plead with you to not hesitate to believe the gospel. It is the best news you will ever hear in the entirety of your life. Please believe and trust in Christ. I can't implore you enough. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in Christ. It's truly good news for those who have believed in the gospel. And if you have not believed in the gospel, just to be straightforward with you, you are still under the curse of God. Trust Christ. Trust Him. Please trust Him if you haven't done it already. I'm going to ask the band to come on up. I'm going to pray in a second. Just where you are, I just want you to spend a few moments. If you are a Christ follower, just... Expressing your thanksgiving to God for all that He has done for us in Christ. This is such a simple gospel, and it's the most profound message. And it's true. So I just want you to, we didn't have a time of confession earlier, so just right now where you are, just maybe confess your sins to God and then bask in His grace and thank Him for forgiving you in Jesus Christ. Let's just spend a couple of minutes and do that. Father, if we are being truly honest with ourselves, I think most of us in this room would find it not too difficult to realize how short we fall of your standard. What we find more difficult is believing you still love us. Lord, even as we reflect on our sin now, and we not reflect on our sin apart from viewing the cross, the cross that demonstrates your great love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let us not just confess sin, but let us be reminded of absolution in Christ. Yes, our sins are great, but your grace is all the greater. That we deserve the curse. And Christ became a curse for us. Not because he was obligated to, but because he loved us. 